Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, one-off housing has been in the news lately. We had former Junior Minister Damien English's problems around not providing correct information for a one-off house in County Meath, which showed how rules have tightened about where houses can be built. Apart from that, the government is due to issue new rules on one-off housing and the statistics show that those who want the splendid isolation of their own home still account for up to 40% of new bills in recent years. This might appear perfectly normal for many of us who've grown up with the spectre of one-off housing as a normal part of life beyond the boundaries of the states, cities and towns. However, it's in stark contrast to the approach of most Western developed countries and is actually quite unique. One figure who looms large over the proliferation of one-off houses, particularly since the 1970s, is a man called Jack Fitzsimon. His role is fascinating and that, along with how his ideas developed and flourished, formed the content of a really interesting book published last year, Little Republics, The Story of Bungalow Bliss. It was written by Adrian Duncan, who's a writer who was in this instance producing his first big non-fiction work, to follow novels such as Love Notes from a German Bindling Site and A Sabbatical in Leipzig, along with a, a very interesting, I have to say, collection of short stories, Midfield Dynamo. And Adrian Duncan is my guest today. Adrian, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Mick. Lovely to be here. Adrian, first of all, well done in the book because well written as as might be expected considering your other work, I have to say, but very well put together as well, particularly with the photos and illustrations. What brought you to the subject? Yeah, it's funny. Like I was about ten years working on the book, all in, even more, maybe twelve years working on it. And um, so there's two sort of starting points. The first starting point was, say, for the work itself, which was in about two thousand nine or ten. I went back to art college. I had been a structural engineer. And I went back to art college in Dunleary, and then I went back to uh, I did a master's in uh, called Art and Con- Art in the Contemporary World up in NCAD, which is in uh, Thomas Street in Dublin. And over the course of those two sort of courses in fine art and in uh, say visual culture, I was started looking at the landscape and the buildings on the landscape anew, essentially. And my thesis uh, for the Art and the Contemporary World course was on the bungalow bliss houses. So that was the second starting point. The first starting point then, of course, was that my dad, when I was a young lad, my dad was an engineer, a structural engineer, and he used to be a draftsman as well. And he used to draw house plans for people in the small office at the end of our house uh, for about two decades. He did this kind of work. Um, so from a very young age, I would have seen these sorts of drawings that would have these bungalows that he would have been doing planning permissions for people for. And then when I was went and studied engineering in Aberdeen and then came back during the summers, I used to help out in the engineering office and then I used to actually be involved in drawing some of these bungalows on tracing paper in the late 90s, um, which would be going in for planning permissions at the time. So I suppose I touched the, the certainly the um, the designs of the bungalow a number of times over the course of my life. And then, of course, I was brought up in, um, I won't say it's exactly like the bungalow bliss houses, but it's a variation, my father's variation of the bungalow. and But also all around me on just the outskirts of Ballyman, um, there are all of these bungalows um, either side of me and on in ribbon arrangements along the road. So 
it's just stuff that I would have grown up with and seen. And until I went back to college when in my 30s, I started looking at them freshly, essentially. Yeah, I suppose, as you say, I said, Bellman's very similar. Those of us who come from any element of rural Ireland will be very familiar with it. Interesting also that you're an engineer. Um, between you, me and the wall, I was an engineer once myself, but my wife doesn't believe it on the basis of my complete inaptitude around the houses when anything's to be done. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. No, central character in Bungalow Bliss was Jack Fitzsimon. Tell us a bit about him. Yeah, so Jack Fitzsimons, um, he was from County Meath, Kelson County Meath, and um, he, his father worked for the uh, Land Commission houses back when he was a young fella. And then Jack um, studied, he was interested in housing, it seems to me, all his life. Um, and he went to Dublin and worked for the OPW for a couple of years, and then he ended up in, uh, in Kells working as, as a clerk of works. And then in, so he was sort of, uh, and then he worked for the ESB Rural Electrification Scheme in the uh, sort of mid-50s throughout rural Ireland. But he would have involved in that level, he would have been involved in the actual physical fitting of wires and this kind of stuff. So he sort of moved between drawing, design, and uh, the material of the buildings as well. So he had a very sort of, I would say, ter- certainly in terms of the previous vernacular architecture, the previous types of domestic buildings, he would have had a very, very close knowledge on a number of different registers of those types of houses. Um, and by the late 60s, um, there were a lot of people contacting him in Kells, asking him if they would drop a few house plans for them. Um, and this happened obviously with enough regularity that he realised there was actually a lot of people looking to build houses of their own. So that's when he decided in the early, in the early 70s to produce his own uh, his own book, which was Bungalow Bliss, and which came out in with 20 designs and a series of specifications and descriptions at the back of it. Um, and he self-published that in 1971. Um, and that was essentially the begin- beginning of it. Um, one thing that was sort of essential to him, I think, or really important to him, it seems to me, I met him a couple of times when he was in his, when I was working on this project. He would have been getting on to that. He was in his 80s at that stage. He was always happy to chat to me, you know. But um, one of the things was that he definitely had a very, very strong belief that ru- ha- the sort of conditions that people lived in in the rural countryside should be improved. Um, and he spent his very early years in what would have been called a vernacular cottage, let's say, which would have been a thatched cottage. And these would have been viewed rather romantically by a lot of from a lot of positions. But he said living in them was pretty dreadful. It was damp, unzoned, unheated, dark, and there was no way to live. And he his view was that rural housing should be improved. And I think Bungalow Bliss is his expression. By the way, first of all, is, is the man still alive? No, Jack passed away in 2014. Right. Am I correct? He took it on the road, like he went around selling the book initially. Yeah, so what happened was, um, the way he did it was, he produced, self, as I said, he self-published the book um, himself. And so he had, he designed, did the designs and his, um, his wife, Anne, did the typesetting of all of the specifications to the rear. He got them printed locally and then he put them into the back of his car one morning and drove out into the landscape. Um, so he was going to places like, I suppose, around Kells, Meath, Westmeath, Mullingar, all the large towns. He was stopping into shops, um, petrol stations, service stations, newsagents, all that kind of stuff. And he was just giving them to people to sell over the counter. And within, I think within about six months, he'd sold out all of his stock. And he had to go to a reprint in early 1972. And he sold out in 72 and he reprinted in 73, like like a a new edition in 73, a new edition in 74. And by the time 1981 came along, he was at edition seven of the book. And he'd sold almost 150,000, 200,000 copies of the book by then. And it had become 
what it had produced a sort of vernacular, a new vernacular on the landscape. So that's how he did it. It was very much he used the um, how would you say he used the infrastructures that were available to him, they being the road, uh, the news agents and shops, um, the postal system, and the um, phone system. So people would say, buy the book in the early seventies, pick a design, ring him. Uh, it was a three-digit number uh, at the time, and uh, he'd send them out six copies of each design. And then they would put those copies in with their planning permission documents, which involved a site map and maybe a percolation test at most and a, a spot level between the road and the house and then hopefully get planning. Yes, it's fair. And then, as you say, and it opened up the prospect of a house of one's own out beyond the boundaries of the town for a whole generation of people. Yeah, so previous to that, the sort of options for housing in Ireland were fairly limited you know there was there was well you could emigrate of course uh, which is what most people an awful lot of people did if you were lucky enough you could inherit a house um, but if you weren't willing to do either of those two things then you would need to go onto a housing list and hope to get a house through the government and Bungalow Bliss then produced a fourth option that was attractive to a lot of people and that fitted in with the skills that a lot of people had developed and were had learned and were learning in rural Ireland at that time and fitted in with the amount that people could put into a house. So one of the important features of the Bungalow Bliss publications, certainly this is what I learned when I was talking to people who built their own houses from the Bungalow Bliss book, was that Jack Fitzsimons put a cost of build beside each design. So one thing that was really important in each design was that at the start they were under 116 square metres, which meant that they qualified for the state aid uh, grant. Um, which was about one-tenth of the build cost. So let's say, for for instance, say for design number four or five, the cost to build would be maybe 3,300 or something like that, and you get around 300 quid uh, of, of, of state aid to do it. Um, so that's the demographic the book was aimed towards, and that kind of money was a, more or less doable for an off for a lot of people. And the building skills required to build such a thing um, were also within the skill range of an awful lot of people at that time as well. So it was sort of, I suppose you could say, it was kind of like a perfect storm of uh, all of these kind of, not just economic, but also social elements and educational elements meeting and uh, producing this sort of, uh, this energy and this surge, you know. And it was the regional technical colleges as we knew them, their, um, what do they know, their ITs, yeah. but as we knew them, regional technical colleges around the state, the skills that were being taught there at a time when education was developing in that respect, as you say, that fed into it as well. Yeah, yeah. So like in the late 60s, the regional technical colleges were being planned and built. And so an awful lot of, say, rural centres all of a sudden had um, a type of education that was producing people who were um, skilled in technical um, in technical subjects. And I suppose this mirrors the sort of shift in what how people were working in the landscape at that time. So an awful lot of there was an awful lot less work in agriculture and there was more more work in industry over the course of the 70s people were staying in school longer so by the late 60s there was about a quarter of people over the age of 14 had left uh, school formal school education whereas by the end of the 70s in the early 80s that was down to like um, there was only a seventh of people so they'd more than halved so there was just people who were staying in school longer learning and being able to be taught certain types of things and then of course at this same time the IDA had successfully brought an awful lot of these IDA companies and buildings into the rural landscape as well. So you had an awful lot of businesses like, say, you know, uh, Gentex or let's say, I'm trying to think of other ones, but anyway, um, companies who were like making, say, machine parts or um, elements for um, um, chemical construction or this kind of stuff. 
and they were subcontracting these um, this work out to Ireland into these IDA buildings. I'm sure there were very nice tax breaks and all that kind of stuff. But these companies were very, very tightly knit with the um, RTCs. So for, let's say, for instance, one instance that I came across would be one near me, the Athlone RTC. And in their brochure from the 1976 Michaelmas term, um, you can see in it the there was a very strong connection between these IDA companies and the education that was going on. So, for instance, the IDA companies that were nearby at the time were doing competitions. Uh, so they they would support um, competitions within the university within the uh, RTC, but also there were like um, open days where students or graduates could visit these IDAs um, with a view to then eventually being employed in them and say fitters or let's say skilled operatives or whatever it was. But that's a type of education that's not necessarily, say, in the humanities. It is definitely more at the more technical end of the world. Yeah, and culturally, Adrian, at the time, was it driven by economics entirely in terms of here was a prospect of somebody actually being able to build their home and whereas within uh, settlements, towns and, and villages and what have you, houses weren't being built or couldn't be built, or was there actually this desire to move beyond the town and, you know, one man to, might be sexist, but one man and his ranch kind of thing to be out there in what you might call splendid isolation? Um, well, I think, I don't know about that, maybe, but um, but definitely the fact that people could afford cars. So it was a very car-orientated development in Ireland. Like any of the, if you go to any of the IDA buildings or even any of the RTCs, you'll see there's acreages of um, car parking space around all of them. So it's very aimed towards the car. And I think the bungalows are very much car uh, orientated. So if you ever see how they're how they're laid out on the land, they've got these splayed gateways and they're always, always at least a car widths apart. Um, so it's not like a sort of a town design where you have it's coming off a footpath and it's wide enough for a pram or, you know, something small. These are very, very much car orientated. Um, and I think that's that just has to do with the fact that this idea of mobility, but also the fact that the car was affordable. The other thing about it was that the bungalows then, so if you're driving through the landscape, it's a very, very different experience to walking through it or cycling through it. Um, and I think the bungalows, when they started appearing on the landscape, they were also sort of advertising a new way of living on the landscape in the way in which a billboard might ad- advertise something on the side of the road, that kind of scale of thing. So people driving by the bungalows would have seen them and that there would have been that kind of pro- those projections that you get from a billboard from them as well. This idea of means and projection and imagination and, and need, of course, and desire. Um, so, yeah, the car, I think, is a very fundamental aspect of it. I think that's why the room outside of town was it was accessible, but also the um, farmers were able to sell these pockets of land of about three quarters of an acre to an acre and they were able to avail of certain tax breaks that sort of met that value of land around Ireland. Um, so that's another sort of bureaucratic and another sort of, say, let's say governmental shift that helped aid the um, style of the bungalow bliss houses. And to the best of your knowledge, were there any issues of any substance whatsoever around getting planning for one-off housing at that time, going back to the 70s and that? I don't know if there were that many. I mean, I think at the very start... There weren't that many rejections. There, uh, I wouldn't have thought so. I don't have any figures on this. But all I know is that certainly by the late 80s, there was, you know, there was, because there's so many of these houses being built. So let's say by the late 70s, there were about 10,000 one-off houses being built in Ireland every year, um, which is, you know, that's a, that's a lot of houses. Um, and by the 80s, then, there was an awful lot of houses appearing in parts of the Western landscape that were thought to be sort of uh, insensitively cited. Um, and... I think part of that has to do with the planning pack that 
that I described earlier on. Um, the planning pack was a very diagrammatic and very, um, uh, how would you say, pr pragmatic document, almost a mathematical document. And it suited the sort of drafting and um, imagining skill or the drafting skills, let's say, of people who were applying for planning permissions. So there was no necessity in the planning permission to show the building subsumed into the landscape with, like, say, an isometric drawing that ar an architect would be able to produce. The way in which it was put into the landscape was shown in flat squares onto um, ordnance survey maps that themselves did not have contours. So there was very little imagination as to or understanding as to the kind of land that it was going on to. And in the Midlands, east and south, where the land is fairly flat, um, this planning pack worked fairly well. You know, you have a road and you have a plot. But then once you start going into the undulating land, the planning pack itself just started breaking down. It just didn't have enough complexity to hold what was actually happening or to, to show it. So that was one thing. Um, there was this, The planning pack was weak in these undulating areas. And then the other thing was that there was a sort of political aspect to it. There was a Section 4 loophole within the Planning Act whereby local councillors could go in and um, lobby for a overturning a, a planning decision, say a negative planning decision. Very famous section, I think, yeah. Yeah, a very famous section. And um, so that would have led to, an, to, to, to some planning decisions that were probably correct to have been rejected, being overturned. And so then all of a sudden you've got a house on what would have been, might be described as a, you know, that might be, have been insensitively cited. So it was like everything, it was a culmination of these, of these things was going on, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then we come into the 80s and you begin to have some criticisms of the idea of one-off housing and the proliferation of it. Uh, groups, I think, like Tashka and the Tourist Board were probably first among those who, who decided to, uh, to uh, well, as they saw it, this was not healthy in terms of, of the environment going forward. Yeah, so of course there were environmental concerns and I think the environmental concerns are entirely, they are entirely valid you know like they're entirely valid concerns and i think you know one thing is like there was dispersed building in ireland all the way during during the land commission houses you know they were very dispersed houses but the difference is those land commission houses weren't serviced so they didn't have electricity going into them or they weren't first built with electricity going into them they wouldn't have had water um flowing in and out of them and they wouldn't have had the need for sewage uh sewer to, to take care of the sewage so those are three major services that all of these bungalows would have needed electricity water and, and sewage. And then if you add that today, let's say if you think about it today, then you need also broadband, you know. And, you know, fitting a house that's, you know, a mile and a half down a small road away from several other houses, that's an expensive um, business uh, in a, in a, if you're providing services for one house, you know. So from that point of view, of course, I think that's entirely, that, that, that's, a, that's a strong argument against what was happening. Um, the other argument, of course, is that at the time, the tourist board um, were framing Ireland in obviously a very particular way, a sort of a, a desolate and bleak and beautiful kind of country. And so they were framing the Irish countryside in a very specific way that would be marketable to, you know, um, people outside of Ireland and inside Ireland, of course, as well. Um, and if you've got a bungalow then in the middle of one of these sort of, um, you know, carefully managed images, then um, whether in reality or in or in the actual image itself, uh, that produces a sort of tension that's uh, produced anxieties in those who are trying to make uh, tourism a viable. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Industry in Ireland, you know. Um, so yeah, they, that, that would have been certainly they would have been part of the kickback against the bungalows in the late eighties. Yeah, and then it, it became the focus of some media attention. And in in the book, you mentioned in particular Frank McDonald in the Irish Times. Frank McDonald be well known to a lot of people. He's very long term um, environmental correspondent editor in the Irish Times, written a number of books. Very much passionate, I'd, I'd suggest, about the environment. And um, he'd have a particular view of it that would certainly have a lot of traction and a lot of opposition in some quarters as well. But Frank started writing about it in the Irish Times. And then you had, as you kind of described it, it developed into a type of a a culture war in the letters pages, rural Ireland versus the the city kind of thing. Yeah, there was a bit of that going on. So um, Frank wrote these really brilliant articles in the late uh, 80s. Um, there was three of them that came out in September of 87, I think it was. I can't remember exactly the titles of them, but Bungalow Blitz was sort of the general title under which they all lay. They were obviously, of course, brilliantly researched and all that kind of stuff, and they were very, very interesting. I think he makes, in terms of these things of um, environmental concerns and all this kind of stuff, and also the sort of the misuse of Section 4, I mean, all of these things are absolutely uh, really important things that he was pointing out as problematic with the bungalows. And he was, of course, entirely right to do so, or, or at least I agree with him. Um, the the I suppose the thing that became the flashpoint was the um, the sort of aesthetic denigration of the houses and the way in which they were being described by um, people who perceived themselves to have superior taste to those who were building the bungalows. Um, and within that, there he lit a sort of um, I suppose a bit of a a bit of a response um, in terms of how people were, uh, how their houses were being talk- spoken about. And I think one of the things that sort of appeared often in his in his articles was a sort of a tone uh, of certainly kind of looking down their nose at these, at these, at these houses that people were very attached to the, their bungalows and they didn't see anything far from it. They saw much right with their bungalows and the criticisms when it came to aesthetics were, um, yeah, well, let's just, they were, um, they, they, Framed the people who built the houses as being unsophisticated. Did they frame them that way, Adrian, or was that what was picked up, irrespective of whether it was intended? I wonder. I'm just quoting here. It's a couple of very nice passages you've here in the book in relation to this area. You suggested this structure of snobbery trickled down to many members of the public. Denigrating these bungalows became shorthand to imply one's own urbanity and cultural sophistication. Who, with any taste, was going to disagree? You're referencing that there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, like I, whenever I've been talking to people sometimes about <laughs> the bungalows, uh, an awful lot of people, their first response is, they're just awful, aren't they? And, yeah, um, yeah. and I think that, that someone saying that is obviously what they're also saying is, and I'm quite sophisticated. Um, and <laughs> yes, yeah. I think there's, I, I just don't agree with that kind of a, oh, I, I don't agree. I don't agree. Uh, I don't agree with it, and I don't agree with, the, with those sorts of framings of of superiority and that kind of stuff. I just, I just, um, it doesn't sit right with me. What I went for, what I kind of was looking at in the Frank McDonald articles was the use of very particular words um, like rabid and um, these kinds of things. 
And what right. he, what I realized was when I started analyzing the language that he was using and some of the other critics, of course, as well, uh, was that they were using the sort of language that produced a an Irish man, an Irish woman, let's say the bungalow dwellers, as being sort of savages or sort of deeply unsophisticated. And I found that this was a sort of similar kind of like similar sort of um, way of framing that existed in the 19th century when the British would have been describing Irish peasants. And um, I just found that 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 to me is sort of a uh, is a sort of snobbery that at least needs to be pointed out. Um, and that's what I was trying to do in that uh, that part of the ch- that part of the book. And you did it well too. I have to say, and I can see exactly wh- where you're coming from. The, there are two sides to it, I suppose. Uh, just another quote here, and I, I, this is I, again I find interesting. You point out that there was kind of back and forth then in the letters pages, and you effectively had two views mm. emerging. Uh, one that from the, I suppose broadly might call it Frank McDonald's view and, and those who described to Frank's point of view and then those who were very much in favour of um, bungalows on the basis of rural Ireland etc but you point out all of this coverage opinion and argument brings into focus two cultural bases though bitterly divided they both have something in common they pretend to and are steeped in a certain romanticism towards the Irish countryside expand on that there for me will you yeah so there were, two, as far as I can tell, from the way in which I was kind of lo- looking through all of these articles and the responses, that the, yeah, there are these two types of romanticism. So one type of romanticism was was an older one, and it would have come from, and let's say this romanticism belongs to the Frank, Frank McDonald and the other broadsheet press and the architects and all this kind of stuff. And this romanticism stemmed from a view of Ireland that would have been produced back in the early nineteen hundreds. Um, that would have been a sort of Gaelic revivalist kind of Ireland. So the images and paintings of Paul Henry, the poetry of Yeats, this kind of stuff, the uh, the paintings of Keating, these kinds of, and, and the writing of Singh. So this Anglo-centric sort of nationalism, this sort of uh, view of the Irish uh, of the Irish land as being somehow authentically Irish and having something, this view holding something uh, that is authentically Irish. And that was one sort of romanticism. And I felt that this is the sort of romanticism that was framing the criticisms coming from the broadsheet press and Frank MacDonald and what have you. And that's entirely fine. But then I thought there was another type of romanticism that stemmed from the early 1960s with the Lamas government, which would have been a sort of very, um, a form follow function sort of uh, view of Ireland. And the idea also then preceding that of De Valera's, the bright and cosy homesteads in uh, dotted throughout the land. So this idea of developing out of the darkness of Ireland, sort of putting pinpricks of habitation into Ireland, which involved essentially mobilising the country into modernity. Um, and this produced a sort of, there was a sort of romanticism in this by the late, by the late 80s. And this was the one that I felt uh, helped at least, or I'm sure there was lots of other ways it was looked at, but at least, at least this one was what framed the responses from those who thought the bungalows were productive and helped to produce this picture of Ireland. So what you had were two types of pictures that were not sitting happily with each other, two, two types of pictures of Ireland that were not sitting happily with each other at that time, and both of them had uh, were stemming from a, a, a romantic imagination of the country. Um, so that was where, that's what I saw as being the, the tension uh, that went through that period of late 80s. And I, I think it still exists to a certain degree. Um, um, I think it's the, the sort of the building landscape of Ireland is much less simple now. Since then, there's been obviously a huge amount of building and booming and busting, and the scale of what's happened since has dwarfed what happened, what what the bungalow bliss uh, houses were doing. So it's not as simple now. But certainly at that time, that was how I. That's what it's sort of. That's how I formulated that late eighties kind of flair. 
To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Now, if we move it on, the way I look at this at the moment, Adrian, I have to say, and I see, for example, town I'm originally from, Carsveen in South Kerry, it's very obvious to me. And I, I also noticed other areas, places I know around the country. What we seem to have now in an awful lot of these places is towns that are completely emptied out. We have people who, and I take totally on board what you're saying, and I agree with you, that to the largest sense, it was economic necessity when you go back 40, 50 years. But at some stage, it becomes choice of living and the idea of having your own place. And, and I think things developed a long way from Jack Fitzsimons' original designs and what have you, for various reasons. But we have now, it would seem, a situation whereby you've emptied towns, you have people proliferating in one-off houses right throughout the countryside, the majority, if not the vast majority of whom don't need to live out there for working on the land or anything of that nature. And I think that's a big problem and it's a big problem in a whole number of different ways. And it's particularly a problem when people get on in life, they become widowed or whatever and, and they're out there on their own and you have this empty town inside there that's effectively dying. And what do you think of that? Yeah, like I think the bungalows are definitely, they're definitely suited to a young person, to young people living. I think they're not necessarily so suited to, you know, elderly um, stages of people's lives. Um, because, like I say, they, they required mobility to live in, a lot of mobility, car driving, all that kind of stuff. And I do think that the towns are obviously, like, I mean, you know, the American philosopher, uh, Lewis Mumford, he was of the opinion that, um, and he was in contrast he, with his father-in-law, Frank Lloyd Wright, who thought every American family should have one acre of land each. You know, this is the minimum. minimum. And Mumford was of the opinion that this would reduce social intercourse and this is not a good idea at all. And I think that it, at different stages of life, both views of theirs are entirely, uh, I agree with, we agree with them. I think we, when a young family and having room is, uh, I can understand the attraction of that. But then also when you're getting older, the idea of someone being quite distant from you and being isolated in that way uh, is obviously not, doesn't work. And I think that that is one of that certainly would be a, the bungalows would not function very well, I don't think, for a, for a very, very old for a person who's getting very old. Um, and I think towns obviously would have a huge amount to play because in a town you have that kind of intimacy and social intercourse um, that's just in the physical closeness of these things. So, yes, I totally agree that the bungalows are are are, are certainly suited towards a particular stage of life. Um, the other thing I think that also contributed to, you know, these uh, these towns being emptied out, let's say, for instance, Longford Town or whatever, um, was that when the when the motorways were being built in the uh, during the sort of late 19th, early 2000s, um, you had a, these very deductive lines of travel, you know, emerging out from Dublin down to these centres. And they would have had a huge effect on living patterns uh, in in these in these in these towns and in these counties. And. Things like ring roads were built around towns to put more housing. And on those ring roads then were put also, not just housing, but also roundabout developments. Um, and into these roundabout developments were put cafes and cinemas and book and shops. And this sucked an awful lot of the social intercourse and trade out of the middle of these towns. And uh, I think that's been that's been a very, very damaging uh, aspect as well. So I don't know. So yes, of course, there's a living and breathing population, but there's also the way in which the um how would you say the economy was affected by these by these shifts in road design in Ireland as well. And do you think where we are at the moment, and we'd rather not be here, particularly in relation to the likes of climate change, 
and the sustainability and what have you. Do you think it remains as positive today an option, both culturally and, and every other way, to continue with building bungalows outside the towns and what have you, rather than attempting to make towns more attractive for people to live in, basically? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the bungalow, the way in which the bungalow happened was like the, the planning laws were just way more liberal back in the early 70s. Uh, the room for interpretation was far more liberal back in the early 70s as well. The planning laws, obviously, since uh, tightened in 2000, so it's less easy to, to actually build one-off houses. But also, I don't know if one-off housing is is the most environmentally friendly way to build anymore. I think it's obviously much easier to service with water, electrics, broadband, all this kind of stuff, a cluster of housing or a, a close gathering of housing than a houses that are stretching out across the road. Just simply, if you divide distance by material required, you just have a simple uh, answer that it just takes less material to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if if the prism, and I think the prism is, the most dominant prism now is um, environment um, and actually producing shelter, if you take those two, say, uh, lenses and put them together. I think what you should be looking at through housing would be, yeah, the 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 um, a efficient and affordable uh, provision of housing um, that's also environmentally friendly, and that and that and that to me does not equal uh, one-off housing in the bungalow bus style. Yeah, and having said all that, and finally, Adrian Jack Fitzsimon, I suppose he was a pioneer in his own way. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he's definitely had probably the biggest impact uh, on the Irish countryside um, outside of maybe the rural electrification scheme, you know, um, in terms of altering the countryside. Um, His book certainly produced a a new vernacular within the country for rural housing. Um, I think obviously he was, he obviously put the book out, but there are all of these cultural forces that were bubbling up at that same time, and they carried they carried the style and carried the, the the whole thing together. So it is a mix. He brought the design, but the people brought the the energy and the materials. You know, so it was a sort of it was a mix of the two. And I think also like just going back to that sustainability conversation. So there are still several thousands of these bungalows on the landscape, and I think they're still hardy little structures, and often certainly ones that were built, you know, up until the say maybe early two thousands. All of those are well built houses, and the materials are of good good quality. And with proper insulation, um, they will be perfectly functioning houses for a good while longer. And I think families are smaller now than they were in the seventies. And I think the sizes of these houses would suit a one or two, uh, one or two pers- one or two child family, uh, pretty well. I think it is a solution for definitely a kind of middle to lower middle class part of the demographic because they just are not not cheap. They're they they cost a lot of money even just to build one and to do one up. So, but they, I think they are part of a solution as well. Um, but not, but without saying that, I would suggest that we start building in that way again. You know, um, yeah, I, I would definitely say use definitely use what is there as well. But you could say that about right the way through the country, <laughs> the amount of derelict buildings throughout Cork and Dublin and all these places. Um, all of these buildings should be used as well. You know, that is, is is very valid. And the point you make too about how well built they were, because we, even this week, I know you're you're based in Berlin, but even this week politically. Mm. So there was a, a redress scheme announced for yeah, up yeah. to 100,000 apartments. So I think we lost our way, certainly in terms of the way things were built. And one thing is sure, they were built properly prior to the the so-called uh, 
Celtic Tiger taking a romp through um, through Irish society. Mm. Adrian, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, the book is Little Republics, The Story of Bungalow Bliss by Adrian Duncan. I have to say, folks, to me, it's fascinating. It, it, culture, the history, how we've got here architecturally in terms of one-off housing. It's a really interesting read. Adrian, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Mick. Folks, as always, I'd like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.